0: Hello Disciple Makers Podcast listeners, I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, He was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed His disciples into full-on disciple makers, and by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Hello, everybody. This is the Disciple Makers podcast by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Soval. And this season, we've been working our way through the track sessions from last year's National Disciple Making Forum. Today, we've got Scotty Kessler from Faith International University. This was their track session number two. So if you missed the first one, make sure you skip back to the previous episode and get caught up on that. Scotty is a passionate disciple maker, and he's also a football coach. So the message you're about to hear today is both passionate and fiery. It's great stuff from Scotty about what discipleship is not, and also the role that prayer plays in making disciples. After the break, Scotty goes into discipling the lost sheep, discipling in twos and threes, not just one at a time. This is a great reminder to take the pressure off, to disciple people in the most perfect way. There's not a perfect way. Discipleship is messy. Let's embrace the mess and go with what God has put on our hearts for discipling the lost sheep. All right, y'all, hope you enjoy this episode. Let's jump in. It's the Scotty Kessler with Faith International University.
1: Okay, let's begin. Um, we got a few people in here that were here the previous session. I think most of y'all are uh, new. So I'm just going to repeat a little bit in the beginning, if you don't mind. My name is Scotty Kessler. I'm the director and a professor of the Robert Coleman School of discipleship at Faith International University and Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. I live in Omaha, Nebraska with my wife, and I have three kids, one at home, an eight-year-old, and my boys are out in about 23 and 26. Uh, This breakout session is called Discipling Biblically, The Master Plan Way, What It Is and What It Isn't. The way the sessions worked out is last session that you just came from. Uh, We talked about discipling biblically, what it is. This session is about d- discipling biblically what it is not. So if you were in the last session, they'll at some point be married a little bit. If you weren't in the last session, it will be a shade disjointed. Um, uh, tomorrow is a repeat, so if you're here for the second session and you want to hear the first session, just come to the morning time tomorrow, which will be at 9 a.m. The second session tomorrow is at excuse me 8 a.m. 8 a.m. tomorrow is the repeat of the first session, and 11 a.m. is a repeat of this session. Um, I'm not an expert on discipleship or evangelism. I am attempting to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Hopefully, I'll come off uh, with humility, um, and I hope to have some conviction also about what we believe, and and I'm attempting to articulate that. Um, in most cases what i say is is there are points that are agree to disagree meaning i'm not implying that this is the way at all i i am i am implying that it's a way to look at these things it's not the way to look at them and uh, i'd feel completely fine and embrace your having your own conviction different and uh, doing it a different way just like uh, we who have children parent in a few ways similarly there's a lot of differentiation in how people parent, and nobody would contend that's inappropriate. There's not a perfect way to parent. There are no perfect parents. We're all flawed parents tra- raising flawed kids You know, under the mercy and grace of God. Uh, and yet there are certain things that will be consistent, like uh, uh, treat uh, people with respect and consider others better than yourselves. These are all Bible verse principles that even in... Families that don't worship God, they at least, if they're if they're healthy, they're teaching people how to treat each other, how to treat others. In the same way, discipleship and evangelism is approached, where there's lots of ways. There's not a way uh, that everybody has to hold to in the way they do it. So I'm starting that off in the beginning to say that uh, I'm going to share a conviction that we have individually. This is John Wheeler here, who's the Dean and Vice President uh, at our school. And when I say we, I'm really saying we and our school, because on behalf of the school, I'm here presenting a way to think about discipleship and evangelism. That is a way. Any breakout session is gonna share their unique distinction, focus and angle on it. And that's why you're going to multiple sessions, because you're just trying to get ideas and. And uh, hopefully we'll present some that might be viable to you. Uh, Dr. Coleman, author of The Master Plan of Evangelism and the namesake of our school, he'll be tomorrow, he'll be recognized today. Well, let's see. Um, He might have been recognized today. No, tomorrow afternoon they're going to recognize somebody who gets the Robert Coleman Award. And then he'll be here at the last session and they'll bring him up front. He's 95-ish. But he's a patriarch in the movement of thinking about discipleship and evangelism in our generation. Sidekick of Billy Graham, author of a book that's the most notorious book internationally on evangelism and discipleship. And, uh, and, and since he is my mentor, I speak from a flavored by his thinking, and you'll get particular angles of that. Just like when we raise our children, they're a little bit like me and a little bit like my wife and a little bit like neither of us so it is in disciple-making also. Our disciples are those that we're mentoring, whatever terminology use. they're a little bit like us, they're a little bit like others, and they're a little bit like however the Lord wanted to mold them outside of our intervention in their lives. And certainly that is the case uh, for me in our thinking about this. So let me open in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here. You brought them here so you have some purpose for their being here, and I pray that I handle What you've given today the way you want for their sake for your name's sake and for their sake lord you're the teacher i'm asking you to use me get me out of the way may you increase and i decrease and may they hear from you what you want them to hear may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer Uh, when we talk about discipleship we say discipling biblically and the reason we do is there's some couple driving questions that makes us not just call it generally discipleship, but discipling biblically. The questions are what did Jesus do with the 12 according to the Bible? You know, if, if Jesus had 12 disciples and he's the consummate disciple maker, are there things we can learn from the way he worked with the 12 and walked with the 12 that are transferable to other generations, other cultures, across boundaries and time, etc. We believe that, that that is true. Without resources, didn't have a marketing team, didn't have technology, uh, did not have money. Without resources, using simply humans, unschooled ordinary humans, by his own description, Acts 4.13, he had a plan to reach the world, including us, 2,000 years later, eight billion people, with 12 no-namers who hadn't been to Bible school, didn't go to seminary, had nothing other than they had a willingness to surrender their life, and they did, and to sit at his feet, which they did, and go and do likewise. So, in that light, as I said, I've commented about what discipling biblically is, and now I'm gonna comment on on what it is not. And in the, in the, the, comments that I'm going to make now, frankly, we've been at this now for, I think this is our fourth year here. We've taught breakouts three years, and I think we're here four years. And so in sitting in sessions and going to our breakouts ourselves, um, we came away with with feeling like we needed to clarify things for ourselves in our own life, and our own disciple making. And at our school, we wanted to have an understanding of how we articulate what discipleship looks like practically because discipleship to us is not a hypothetical doctrine when he said go make disciples it was not it was an invitation but it was a commandment it wasn't an option it wasn't something that you could see if you want to do or not he was talking to every confessing jesus uh, follower of his now or in the future and saying for the record this is a primary thing that i want you to do go make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey. That's why around here you'll hear terminology about obedience-based discipleship. There's really no other way. But, but frankly, in the body of Christ in the Western world, America, there's lots of people who are born again by confession that don't know the word and thus can't obey it because they don't even know it. Does that make sense? Some attend churches, some do not. And so when they talk about obedience-based discipleship, they're really saying this is the only way there is discipleship, is obedience. Because God said, uh, go make, baptize, and teach them to obey. But it's a reminder to us in the discipleship community, part of discipleship.org, that we want to make sure that this is not about simply converting. This is about following such a way that you have a heart to obey. Though we're all flawed, the hardest is to obey, and when we don't obey, whether out of ignorance or arrogance, I mean, you didn't even know that that was in the Bible something you are supposed to heed, you're still accountable to it, whether you're ignorant of it or not. You know, Jay and I are football coaches, and whether I know a certain rule in, in football or not, when I'm in the game, the officials are gonna make a ruling. And if I didn't know the rule, I'm still bound by it, and I can't say, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. You, that It's good you didn't know it, good you didn't know it. I understand you didn't know it, but you're still bound by it. And we're bound by the word of God, whether we know it or not, so it'd be helpful to know it. And that's why he's trying to teach us who are walking with others to teach them not only knowledge acquisition, but obedience on the knowledge that's been acquired, right? We break ignorance. Ignorance doesn't mean stupid or foolish. It just means you don't know. So we break ignorance with education but there has to be an action step on the education of obedience for you to be a true follower of Jesus. Because there is really no such thing as a disobedient follower of Jesus, because how could you be not following Him and follow Him? Right, so a Bible verse we use in that regard. I'm off on a little rabbit trail, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit on this one. First John 2, 3 and 4 says, We know that we've come to know Him because we obey His commands. The man who says, I know Him, check this out now because this is provocative. For the American church, the man who says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I would contend it's not going to go well for that person. I'd contend that that is not a good plan. It's not that they. It's not that we don't ever disobey. It's that when we do disobey, we're repentant, and so he's looking for people with a heart to obey who want to obey. And when they don't obey, they make it right by confessing their sins. Does that make sense? So we're not talking about sinlessness. We're talking about the heart of God to want to obey, and when we disobey, to get right with Him about that disobedience. That's what a follower of Jesus looks like. And to not want to obey, or care to obey, puts you in a prepared spot, I'd say, based on the principle of that verse and other verses that you could pool about what obedience is and how big a deal it is to God. Of course, we know the verse, now I'm further. Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not preach the gospel? Did we not prophesy? He didn't say they didn't. He just said, depart from me, I don't even know you. That's a bad place to be. So they clearly must have prophesied, even maybe legitimately. They must have done the miraculous cast out demons. They must have done a bunch of legitimate Christian stuff. And yet, at the end of the day, to their shock, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a bad spot to be in. Okay, so that's why we talk about biblical-based, discipleship or obedience-based discipleship. That's where our name comes from. So last session, I talked about what we are. Now let's talk about what we're not. Again, this is our thinking. It does not need to be your thinking. So if you're in the category uh, of, of, of something, you feel like, time out, we do that, and we feel good about that. You should feel good about that. If the Lord told you to do it, do it. I'm just saying this is what he shared with us in our articulation. So listen to me now. In our disciple making, we are not, I got about six things here. We are not materials, resources driven. Though the Bible is our primary resource. In our disciple making, if I'm working with John as my disciple, if I'm working with him in a father-son relationship, we don't bring in other books and outside books. We work in and through the Bible because it's hard enough to learn what the Bible says and obey it than it is for us to study books about the Bible even if they're anointed by men and women of God, we make sure that our primary operating system is the Word of God. And from that and through that, our disciple-making processes work. We with Him, Him with others, and the others with another's. We call that fourth generation discipleship. When those you work with work with others who work with others, that to us would be under the banner of discipling biblically. That it'd be multiple generations in the same lifetime together reproducing other disciples in community. This is bigger than just having a small group and helping people grow. Okay? It's different. Not better or worse. It's different. It'd be our conviction, but if that's your, not your conviction, that's cool. We want to be Jesus-driven. Jesus opera, uh, you know, driven by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So we're not using other books. Frankly, the only book that we introduce, this is not an exception to what I just said to you, because we're trying to teach a way to think about making disciples, which is a biblical mandate, we use this book as a supplement. So if I was teaching this class, part of what I would do is we would go through this book also as I'm teaching the class. Even the Bible is our operating system because this says what I says, which I'm saying better and different because it's the guy who people recognize had the articulation that is most recognized by Billy Graham and Bill Bright and Luis Palau, these legends of the faith in our generation, all say, other than the Bible, this book framed their disciple-making more than any other book. So it's worth considering if you have people that have a lot of fruit out of it in our lifetimes doing it. That'd be the only exception, and and I don't feel bad about that being an exception in this case. Number two, we're not church-driven. Hear me now. We're committed to the local church, but, but discipleship is not a program. It's not a program within the local church. Discipleship drives the local church because it drives them to do what they're called to do in community to reach the lost and raise up the saved. And discipleship, biblically, is the mechanism within the local church that does that in our experience, and it seems to be the biblical record, in a way that we would say He ordained. Now, I'm stepping on toes maybe, and so I'm just saying this is our conviction. You can decide if it's your conviction, but this kind of making disciples, which He commanded everybody to do, was not separate of the local church, it was within the local church and should be the driving educational process within the church is our opinion versus having Christian education classes where people learn stuff, but don't have somebody individually teaching them who's responsible for them. Does that make sense? So I can go to a class where I learn, or I can learn from someone the materials. Jesus didn't take the twelve to rabbinical school. He was the rabbinical school. He didn't give them a three-ring binder, which is what we do, right? Give them a book, give them some stuff, invite them in, invite them to a small group. We give them stuff hoping that they bite and actually do it, but they don't have anybody to do it with or anybody could help them with it. That would seem to be problematic to us. That's not just based intuitively, that's my experience. I was on pastoral staff at a mega church for seven years. Our plan was a bad plan. It bore bad fruit. Bad plans tend to bear bad fruit, meaning it didn't get what it wanted. Out of its sincere attempt to take professing new believers or orphan believers, meaning they're not new believers, they may have Lord, known the Lord for a year or a decade or three, but at some point they acknowledged that they didn't know much and they wanted to learn more, and, and so the option was to give them a class. Can you imagine my eight year old daughter? I just given her to a class. If, if I didn't parent my daughter, I saw her on Sunday for an hour or two, and I saw her on Wednesday night for an hour, which is what we do to believers. We send them to a class with somebody they have no relationship with probably to teach them stuff. We never do that to our own kids but we do that to his kids all the time, and we don't think twice about it, which is a problem. Uh, we are not small group driven, third one. Hear me now, these are all plays on words. Where you find small groups, I've been in churches and small groups, you probably have small group ministry. There's nothing wrong with small groups. It's just, there may be no discipleship in small groups of the kind we're talking about. You go to a group, it's small, and you fellowship maybe, maybe you pray a little bit, you maybe go over a book, you maybe have a meal together, all of it's good. It's not making disciples. It's allowing them to be in community that's good. It may be allowing them to learn stuff about God that's good. All this stuff is good, but it's not making disciples. You would never do that to your own blood. Why would you do it to His children? Raise them that way. This is the disconnect that we find. That's what I'm trying to articulate. It was our way of thinking about this. Where you find biblical discipleship, you'll have small groups. Because I'm meeting with one or three or nine guys and we're a small group meeting, learning about God and learning to obey and reaching others who are lost and bringing into the fold those that are saved that have no spiritual parent or have never had one. I was never discipled. I grew I was saved at four. I grew up in a denomination that's historical, orthodox, conservative Mennonite. I never heard any of this stuff, never had an option. Nobody ever approached me. I was discipled by the local church as an umbrella where they threw out food on Sunday school and et cetera, and I picked and choose what I, you know, and, and it worked out okay for me, but for a whole bunch of others, it didn't. Because they didn't have oversight in the process. They didn't have supervision. They didn't have somebody spiritually parenting them. Right? They didn't. So where you find small groups, you may not find discipleship. However, where you have biblical discipleship of the kind we're talking about, there will be small groups of disciples and disciple makers. And so our discipleship drives small groups. It doesn't. It isn't there as a substitute for small groups. And small groups is not a substitute for discipleship. So you can have an incredible small group program at your church. And that doesn't mean anybody in that small group has anybody individually walking with them in the early stages of their faith. Does that make sense? Nobody responsible for it. Picture this. This is uh, see, I'm going to get to this, but I'm going to hit it right now. So when we think, this is, a, this is a thinking thing. It's not a Bible verse. Although I could think I can biblically support it. When we think about discipleship, we think about spiritually parenting. So we'll say, who's your father or your mother spiritually? Who is responsible to walk with you during these early stages as you transition into super baby, to elementary school spiritually, to junior high, to high school, and then out in the fold? Who is overseeing you in this process? Most people had never had, I didn't, an experience of having anybody say, let me walk with you. Would you like to walk with me? I had lots of people say, let me know if you need anything. Let me know if you need anything. is not gonna work when you're in trouble, because usually it's too late at that point, or you're too embarrassed or shy to ask for help. Does that make sense? It's way too late. When you finally get help, that means it's too late. When you have somebody walking with you, you don't even get in that spot where it's too late, because you always had that off. Because somebody knows you, and they know what you're going through all the time, right? Just like a parent does. I shouldn't say that we get tricked sometimes we don't know what's going on but we got a better chance of knowing what's going on because they live under our roof and we have a quantity of contact this is a rub we have a quantity of contact with them over time so there's a better chance we know what's going on with them or we can discern even if they don't talk much we can know something's up right how do you know that when you see somebody once a week in a small group meeting that you don't interact with during the week I mean his life may have gone to the toilet within that week, and, and he may not have brought it up because he didn't feel safe, in which case, God knows what happens within that week or that day or that month that you're out of contact because the group wasn't meeting. Problem. So we see a discipler like a father or mother spiritually and we see mentors, we distinguish the difference. A, a, a discipler is like a father or mother, a mentor is like an uncle and aunt. I got lots of uncle and aunts, nine on one side, five on another, okay? Lots of uncles. I love them. Can't have too many uncles and aunts that are, you know, that are good. But but when I'm at a family gathering, which we had when I was younger a lot, and my and I poop my pants, the uncle and aunt don't change the diaper. Who changes the diaper? The parents. Everybody understands that parents change diapers. And if I barf, you know, is it? Then my parents clean it up and me up. Now the uncle or aunt may occasionally be willing to say, I'll take the diaper, you stay in here, right? Occasionally that'll happen, maybe if you got unique, Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll take care of something. Picture this now, one is responsible, the other's available, does that make sense? Uncles and aunts are available. Being available is a good thing, it's a big thing. It's different than being responsible. A father and mother in the raising of a child is different than an uncle aunt, correct? They don't live in the household. They don't know everything's going on. They may not even live in the same state. They love the kid a lot. They want it to go well with them. They really do want to be helpful, but they're just not present physically, emotionally, mentally, like as if they were a parent. Is that fair? Was I ever spiritually parented? No. I grew up in the local orphanage called the local church And the community raised me, which means nobody was responsible and a bunch of people were available. And that's problematic because I got my foot in all kinds of bad places and nobody knew about it because nobody was responsible and engaged me in a way that occurs that a parent does with a child different than uncles and aunts who care a lot, let alone community members who aren't even related to me. So to us, discipling biblically is spiritually parenting those who want to be parented. Now in the flesh, it doesn't matter whether he wants to be my son or not, he's my son. But in the spirit, it's a mutually agreed upon relationship where I'm here to serve you and you want to be served. There's there's an agreement that happens in discipling biblically. When he went to the 12, he gave him the option to come, follow me they had the option to say no. The 12 happened to say yes. Does that make sense? But the rich young ruler said what? He said no, right? And so in Christianity, in spiritual parenting, discipleship, the child has the opportunity to not be willing. And when that happens, obviously you don't have a discipleship relationship. Uh, Number four, we're not Bible study driven. Hear me now. In our operating system of disciple making, we have something called, it's just nomenclature, I, I'm a sport guy. And there happened to be 10 habits and spiritual disciplines that we felt we wanted our spiritual children to have as part of their discipline, spiritual disciplines, make sense? So this all started when I was a college football coach. I started to come along college football players who wanted to be in relation with me because they heard I was a Jesus guy, and they wanted to grow, and I was a coach, and they were players. It all started in 1992, and I sat back over time once I was meeting with them, and I was doing what I called a little bit plan, which is not a great plan, but it's an okay plan. A little bit plan means when we got together, we read a little bit, we prayed a little bit, we talked a little bit. We just did a little bit of everything. And and, and we had this regular meeting where we read a little bit, that's good. We prayed a little bit, that's good. And we talked a lot, to be honest. But we call it the little bit plan. Little bit plan is not a bad plan, it's just not a great plan. Now we do a lot of bit plan instead of a little bit plan. And the lot of bit plan evolved because I sat back and said, I'm going to see these guys for a semester to five years, depending on when I get them in the sequence in the college. And I have responsibility to give them a chance. This is part of our operating system. To walk with God for a lifetime, finish, strong, reproduce, and multiply. Hear me now. Walking with God is hard. Not everybody does it. Walking with God for a lifetime is harder still. A lot of people walk with God for a season, and then they go out to pasture or they reject the faith. Isn't that right? Finishing strong is a rare deal. In our country, I'd say, in the body of Christ, you just don't hear from people anymore when they're in the apex of their ability to pass along things of the faith. Is that right? Right? Part of that is our problem as leaders, we don't resource the old folks in the Lord, for whatever reason. We don't resource those that have the most to give back to the young. They don't have a sense they can give back and the young don't want it from the old folks and that's a problem, that's a whole other category. Walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong. And then most people in America who walk with God and are serious about it, even those that follow for decades, never make disciples. They don't have one person in their life that they ever say, I know I walked with a guy or gal and they walked with me and I walked with them through their gestation years and they came to a point of maturity and now they're walking with other people. Most people don't say that. They don't have anybody. They can't remember one person they led to the Lord, most people in the local church. They never led one person to the Lord that they know they did and they for sure, if they did that, don't have anybody that they know when this is explained, they say, I never came alongside anybody. I might have led a Bible study, right? I might have ran a small group, so those are still a small subsection of people right because most people are attenders and they attend and they attend and they gain knowledge acquisition may or not obey the knowledge that they gain but they're smarter about christian stuff but they never actually obeyed they never made a disciple and they probably never even led anybody to the lord because they left that to the professionals which means they didn't do what he asked them to do does that make sense Yeah, walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce and multiply. It's in the thing here if you ever want to see it. That's just this, when I was with these guys, I thought I don't want them to just be believers. I don't want them to be church, I want them to be players. Players in the kingdom who advance the gospel. Lead people to the Lord, raise them up in the Lord, empower in the Lord, send them out in the Lord, reach others for the Lord until they die or Jesus returns. This is the minimum expectation of a believer. This is not for the high-end guys, the special stars. This is every believer's responsibility, and we've made it optional at every level. My, my opinion, my opinion, local church. Uh, so we're not Bible study driven, though studying the Bible is one of our core tools. You know, our operating system is, this is what we, if I was walking with Daryl over time, uh, we would walk through, reading the Bible. Read, pray, reading, memorizing Scripture, learn the books of the Bible through a Gilligan's Island little kid's song: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and then the books. So through a Gilligan's Island theme song, everybody learns sixty-six books in a row within two weeks. It's a clean deal. They don't have to go to the table of contents. They find their way around the Bible. Okay. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, Bible song, uh, Bible study. Not, not, Bible stu- not doing Bible studies. I'm not, we're not about knowledge acquisition. We want to teach them how to use a study Bible to answer their own question and the questions of others. Learn how to use a study Bible. We can do that in, in the first world. Everybody can buy one or I can buy it for you, whatever. A study Bible with cross-reference system and verse pools so you can build a doctrinal case. God willing, and you'll do it with me because you're in a discipleship relationship. But if you're on an island by yourself with a study Bible, you can build yourself up in the most holy faith by using the study to study the Bible. So the Bible interprets the Bible and you don't need a podcast or some kind of book from some guy who did his dirty work for you. If I give you a fish, you eat for today. If I teach you how to fish, you eat for a lifetime. If I teach you how to teach others how to fish, everybody eats forever. Stop giving people fish because then you got to be enabled with them always or they die. And if you teach them how to fish, good for us, everybody else dies. But if I teach you how to teach others how to fish, eventually everybody eats forever. This is discipleship. Make it reproducible so it's sustainable it'll last. It'll multiply beyond yourself to the ends of the world. It's simple. It's oral, it's relational, and that's why Jesus didn't need stuff. He just needed himself to be there in an intentional, that means on purpose, intentional, strategic, that means he had a plan to meet with 12 guys for three years, fill them with the Holy Spirit, send them out, and it was going to be okay. Because they were connected vertically by the Spirit, and they had, the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few, go get them. And they did, in their flawed ways, Right? So, we wish to teach students how to use a study Bible so they can study the Bible themselves, answer their own questions, and help other people answer their own questions. So if you came to me with a doctrinal question and you were in our discipleship community, I'd give you a verse or two and you'd go to your study Bible and homework for you would be to teach us next week the answer to the question you just asked me. Why give you the answer when you can learn how to use a study Bible and answer the own questions so you can then be empowered to understand I, as a layman, who's never been to Bible school or seminary, can study doctrinal positions and know what the Lord said about such and such. That's empowering. It's empowering. We're not measurables driven. Rather, we are reproduction driven. Jesus did not care about numbers. 12 unschooled ordinary guys was enough. The road is narrow. The pair, the, 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 uh, What parables that That he gives are about one in 10. It's one out of 10 are saved. You know what I mean? He doesn't seem to be anxious. He didn't use his popularity to go do a bunch of talks. Sermon on the Mount happened accidentally. It wasn't his plan. He just was teaching his disciples and a bunch of people showed up. So he thought I'll share with them all, but he knew the crowd was fickle, but he had to invest in the few who were going to impact the many. And discipleship is about impacting the few who are gonna reach the many. If you really wanna reach the many, you gotta develop leaders who can reproduce themselves to reach the many. Because if you scatter seeds to the many, they're fickle and they're just gonna turn on anyways when the pressure mounts. He knew men, he knew mankind. And that's why he knew signs and wonders ain't gonna be sustainable big rallies aren't sustainable, bringing in the big name speaker to do an evangelistic event for 30,000 people to come or 50 for 5,000 people to convert who are not followed up with is not a good plan. But it is the modern day plan, bad plan.
0: Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the discipleship.org collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories, then we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple-making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website. It's actually a community for disciple-makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today.
1: Number six, we're not one-on-one meeting directed. This is a big misnomer in discipleship. People think they're one-on-ones. I mean, I got a wife. I got a job. She's got a home business. We got an eight-year-old. We just had two guys leave the house. There used to be five of us now. so Now there's three of us. Who has time for a bunch of one-on-ones? Unless you're in full time ministry and have flexible days, and even those guys usually are too busy to have many times for one on ones. But I know this if I'm meeting with one, there might as well be three there. And there might as well be 12 there if I'm gonna meet with three. This is, I'm using Jesus, Jesus, I'm playing with you now. Jesus didn't have one on ones, he parented in threes and twelves. Most everything he did was in a 12e. And occasionally he pulled three aside for special instruction. Does that makes sense? He didn't have one-on-one with the 12 guys. Yet in our thinking in America, we think discipleship is I need to meet with you one-on-one. Can you imagine in a family if I had five kids that I had one-on-ones with every kid? No, we eat together and all five learn as I correct one or encourage one, the other four watch and observe. When Jesus was with the 12 and He rebuked Peter, everybody goes, make note, don't say that and don't do that. He discipled in community. Community might be two of you, you and him or her, or it might be 12 of you. I've at times had, because I would live to, had continuity, there's something to continuity, because I had continuity in a city where the word got out that I met with people in groups together in this way. There's once I had 22 in my weekly daily Bob. Now, is 22 too many? I, was, I had a full-time job at the time. It's not like I was in ministry at the time. Is it too many? I don't know what to tell you, but there's a lot of people out there without a father. And dagnabbit, if a guy wants a father, I'll figure it out. That was my heart. I didn't have a ceiling on how many guys to meet with. If they wanted and I couldn't pass them on to one of my disciples to parent, then I'll take them until I can give them to somebody else. Does that make sense? This is the heart of the father. There's sheep out there that have no shepherd. And a good shepherd cares about his sheep. He protects the 99, he goes for the one. And if a stray comes in, he invites him into the family. We'll figure it out. It's not ideal. But I'm not gonna turn down a sheep that is asking for help and he's hungry. That was just my conviction. And that's how I approached it at that time in my life. Parenting is done in community. Jesus met in threes and twelves. The only one-on-ones he had was with unbelievers. Isn't that fascinating? The only recorded one-on-ones he had was with unbelievers. They were, you know, Nicodemus is afraid, right? Woman at the well feels she's dirty. He had one-on-ones with unbelievers, but with his discipleship community, he always met in community. Isn't that the best way to learn? I mean, when I'm coaching kids and and there's 10 guys in my position group, I don't coach them one-on-one. I might take them after to do some extra stuff or before, but when I'm coaching one, the other nine learn. We coach in community. We parent in community. We should disciple in community. I'm not talking about a small group because that community of three or 12 or nine or one or whatever is my family. They're not a program. They're not a job. This is my son in this window of time. He may be 55. He may be 15. He's my son during this window of time. Now this is, I'm gonna make this comment out of sequence in my talk here now, uh, because it's appropriate. This is my belief. And I, I feel super strongly about this. And it's why my life was changed and why I hope some of my disciples, I hope many of them have embraced this. Unless you see your spiritual sons and daughters as if they're your really, they really are your own sons, you're not going to have the heart of discipleship. When I think about my guys, whether it's John, or whether it's some guy out there, I think about them now. Practically speaking, I have different interactions with my blood sons. Do you understand? But, But apart from some practical ramifications, I touch base with my spiritual sons, whether they're local or they're older now and they're sent out and have their own lives, or whether the guys I work with in Omaha where I live now If I view them as a guy or a brother and not my son, they know the difference. And I'm approaching them differently. I'm going to see them as a bother and not as somebody who's asking for a father. And I want to be it at the same time. This is the heart of God. I had some thoughts this week and I actually wrote them down. I'm going to go there right now. And I have no idea where we'll end up, but we're gonna we're gonna roll with the Holy Spirit. I had some thoughts here about shepherding, and I was pondering it this week because I'm reading. I'm I'm I'm, I'm follow, There's a Bible teacher I really really enjoy, and he's in Second Samuel right now, David, and and I've been reading for now a number of years Samuel and Kings and Chronicles continuously. It's kind of my continuous reading because there's so many lessons from good kings and bad kings. There's so many leadership lessons from real people who made a bunch of bad and a few good decisions. And it's so practical that, you know, I just make note in my head, do that, don't do that, do that, don't do that. So just FYI. So I was thinking about shepherding this week. Jesus was a good shepherd. David, as flawed as he was, the Bible, Jesus speaks of him reverently, doesn't he? Or the Bible does. Jesus did too. He allowed his line to come through David. He made a big thing about this guy that was an adulterer, and a murderer, and a conspirator, and a crappy dad whose family was in the toilet bowl. But he elevates him to this place. Here's what, here's my, my take on it. Because Psalm says, David shepherded his flock with integrity of heart. David might have been a lot of things, but you know what God could say? He took care of my people, Israel. He cared for my people, Israel. You as a parent with your children? When you have a babysitter or somebody that really cares about your kids, there's nothing like that, isn't there? I know people that like my kids, and I know people who love my kids. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And God said to us as leaders, I reckon your leaders are in this room. I know you are. He said, Shepherd my flock with integrity because they're my kids, and I'm giving them to you for a month or six months or a year or a season. And I want you to take care of them like your own, because that's my heart. So to David, to Peter, remember, Peter ends up with this interaction with Jesus based on his failure and his repentance and he gets embraced back in the community. And his final conversation with him recorded is, Peter, do you love me? Feed my little ones. Do you love me? Feed my older ones. Do you love me? Take care of my flock. Provide for them and protect them. Provide, protect. Provide, protect for my flock that I'm given to you. They matter to me and they better matter to you because I can tell who doesn't care and who cares. That's called a hireling. And what the Bible says about shepherds who are hirelings is not good. Not good at all. Some of his most vicious attacks are for flaming hypocrites that are unrepentant and shepherds who don't have integrity for the flock. And it makes complete sense because those of us who have children know what it feels like when a babysitter maybe doesn't do our kid right versus those that we feel like Dag Nabbit, I'd let him live with them indefinitely and I know they'd be safe and well cared for. It's not hard when they're your kids to know what you feel about how your children are being supervised by a teacher, by a, you're right, it's all all understandable. So I heard, I'm not gonna use names at all for obvious reasons. So I heard this within the last month, a well-known American leader. This is a problem, in my opinion, because it has to do with discipleship. And I know this community, this network of pastors and leaders that are part of this umbrella, yada, 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 it doesn't really matter but he was talking to his people and he said something that was very telling to me. I had, my antennas were up on it. He said, he was talking to, these all are pastors, pastoral network. He said, remember your job to preach the gospel and handle the word of God. Is that a good thing? Absolutely, it's a good thing. Here's the fascinating thing. In Acts 6-4, the disciples, when the community grew, he said, we're going we're to give the church's responsibility to deacons over a bunch of these real-life needs that the flock has, right? Give our attention to, the, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, I haven't got to it, and I don't know that I will because I was going to spend a good bit of time on the prayer issue, which is a major player in this whole conversation about discipleship, spiritual warfare peace. But I thought it was telling. Because when I think about America, I think there's lots of people that can podcast and preach and teach out of the Bible incredibly. But I don't, I don't frankly know if they really pray. And, and given my experience and having been in church circles and leadership circles in the body for a long time, I can't even think of five people that I know who pray long and often together and have trained their community to be intercessors. Intercession is not a gift. It's a, it's a commandment, it's an opportunity, it's a responsibility. When people pray long and often, they're looked at as weirdos and people say, ooh, that's their, they're gifted in it. They're not gifted in it, they made a decision. They may have an inclination for it, but praying long and often is costly. It takes what we don't have and that's time. And you have to believe in it or you'd never commit to that kind of price. And most ministers don't have time for that kind of price. And though they preach about prayer and talk about pray, yada, yada, if you cut them open and looked at their schedule, I would be shocked if there was any regular number of pastoral leaders that prayed for long blocks of time together with their staff or provided opportunities other than a monthly prayer meeting and a daily bow. You ain't gonna move supernatural forces on an hour a week. For the record. Satan's not up there going, oh no. They're having a prayer meeting where they talk 45 minutes and then they pray the last 15. Ah! But that little old guy or gal that nobody knows and is unschooled and ordinary that's pounding the heavens regarding the will of the Lord and her community or et cetera that guy is a concern of his. And if that person, just as you reproduce disciples, one by one who double and multiply, in the same way, that's how you reproduce intercessors. A leader prays. People watch and pray and join the community. He oversees their praying as it develops. He sends them out to start other prayer brush fires. They disciple other intercessors, And this is how you build freaky numbers doubling one at a time but we can't even find the handful that are doing it themselves to even begin a reproduction process and we wonder why America is flat in terms of spiritual maturity with so much money and so many numbers and so many resources so when I hear a pastoral leader say, make sure you handle the word, this is what I also hear. No comment about their prayer life or lack of. Here's the other part shepherding is not part of the equation. When I think of great pastors, when I say great, when I think of notorious people that are speakers, I, I'm not saying anything personally, I'm just saying in general, it seems to be as people move up the food chain. responsibility. Is that right? In the body of Christ, there's an inverse correlation to their being in touch with with the regular people and the flock that they're responsible for. So I think about God and what He thinks about Shepherd and the flock and how He graciously scolded Peter. I look at Paul. Paul, 2 Corinthians 11, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He went from church to church. As soon as he went to a place and left, the wolves came in and screwed it up. You know, when he died, he didn't die in glory. He died in a bunch of these local congregations in chaos, right? They had a seed and the Lord is the guy that's going to protect it through our prayers, right? But Dagnabbit, he had a hard life. And, and even the believing communities he'd given his life for were just there was a lot of chaos. A lot of chaos. But you see his heart here? His heart said, I face daily the pressure of these churches that I planted or built up the leadership and left my sons and daughters in charge. That's the heart of the shepherd. Heart of the shepherd. He wasn't perfect, but he had a heart. I think about counterfeit discipleship. I think about people that are thinking about discipling, but they aren't thinking these are my sons or daughters. Their things are, these are the guys in my group, right? And they they care about them. They don't care about them like a shepherd cares about the sheep. That's what I feel convicted about. Am I a shepherd when I disciple, or am I just doing the math? Am I doing the math? Because the math does not lie, the math is real. And it's legitimate. This is legitimate. This is, this, is a, this is a discipleship confirmation, a conversation in a conference like this. Think very deeply about the difference between addition and multiplication. This is my encouragement, because I've been in discipleship circles now for 30 years, and I think the body is seeing this incorrectly often, my opinion. My opinion, I may be wrong, you know your circles. There's books about multiplication, there's conferences about multiplication. Our community here talks about multiplication legitimately. But I think a lot of the times they're really thinking about addition and they they have not seen the difference for this reason. If I'm meeting with 10 guys in addition thinking Somebody of those guys who's got a little bit more of whatever, shutzpah, right? He's going to end up, when the group gets too big, we're going to end up spawning another group, right? You get six, seven, you feel like, whoa, we're too big, we're losing intimacy. So, so somebody branches off and I send somebody, right? Somebody goes over, usually the one, whatever, whatever the criteria is. So now we got 20. In disciple-making thinking of the kind where reproduction is the target and not addition, these 10, each one of them, is reaching out to another person and teach them how to reach out to another person. So I don't have one group that's just adding, we were 10 now, we're 11, 12, 13, 20. I had 10 guys, each of whom, who's building their own community, because they're walking with somebody who reproduces himself, and two becomes four, four becomes eight, eight comes 16, 16. Does that make sense? So in disciple making, if you want to multiply, you have to walk with people and teach them how to walk with people and make sure when I say, make sure I'm saying, don't hope, make sure that they teach those they're walking with to teach those they're walking with that they need to walk with somebody else and to continue to do that. Now, these are all hypothetical models. As people are gonna fall out and you know, this is all hypothetical. But Jesus was not concerned about reaching 8 billion in 2000 years because he realized the principle reproduction would turn into reaching the masses and the world because people would give their life away and teach them how to go and do likewise. And so it would play out even with flawed humans not reproducing at all or all the time or well. Does that make sense? He knew enough of them would get it, that it would multiply enough over time that he doesn't have to worry about Nashville in 2000, right? Because I'm gonna have people that are gonna go and they're gonna go and they're gonna go and we're gonna reach the world. And that's why in our generation, regardless, you know, depending on our age, we don't need to worry about having more resources. The harvest is plentiful. The people are out there. They just need to be spiritually parented and taught how to parent others. Who parent others, which means if the world didn't end, which it probably will in my opinion, and and if it played out for another 40 years, right now in this room, there's enough people with the math that we'd reach the world. And we don't have to have, I don't need to know how much money you have. I don't need to know if you know IT, I don't. I don't need to worry about a marketing plan or a big name or who here that's really gifted can be the face of this thing. We don't need that. We just need people who have a heart of a shepherd and will embed in their disciples to go and do likewise and teach them to do likewise. So in text 2 Timothy 2.2 when Paul's talking to Timothy, this is an epistle, version of this generational discipleship, Paul said, Timothy, the things you're hearing me say to these people, you tell others about and make sure those others tell somebody else and it'll all be cool. That's the verse, 2 Timothy 2.2. This is how you reach the world. You walk with somebody deeply, Paul did with Timothy. You make sure he gets that his job is to reproduce himself and others, Timothy did. And make sure that he understood the future generations is the target. It's not about me, Timothy. It's not about you. It's about my sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, which I care about. And you better care about them too. And he cared about them because he knew I cared about him. And he knew what the heart of a shepherd was to care about them and to teach them to care about them. And enough of them would get it that even if the math breaks down, the ball's going to move forward. With people that are being supervised, provided for, protected, with an actual human walking with them. So when I walk with John and I say, John, who are you gonna come alongside the disciple? And he feels ah but ah. We go to our circles and say, write down three or four names in each of these circles in your life, people you already have a relationship with. And let's find out who's lost and let's start praying for him so we can generate in him a heart of evangelism and given him some follow-up tasks, so he combines his prayer with action steps to rub with unbelievers, so he give them a chance to have a relationship, and then we can find out who's in there flopping around in the mud going to the local church, but odds are really isn't grown because he's just attending the church, he's not really committed, and nobody's ever come alongside him, so when John, who's respected his community, comes alongside Danny and says, hey Danny, you want to start meeting regularly at all? We're just going to get together and we're going to go into the Word and we're going to pray and we're going to learn some stuff. Some stuff I'm learning from Scotty, I want to share with you. And Danny knows me and Danny, Danny likes that. And he's thinking, so John's got a disciple of three or 12. And he gets going. And while I'm walking with John, John's walking with Danny and a three or four of the guys. And when John has trouble or he doesn't know what to do about this or that, he comes to me. And because he's my son, I just say, think about this, think about thinking, I'll pray about them. I'll pray about them. I'll pray about them. So he learns to parent by watching me parent him and me having as a supervisor parent as he parents. It's no different than my 26 and three-year-old. When they marry, God will, and we have a relationship that they'll pick my brain as they get married. And then they'll have kids and they'll be over their head like everybody has who has kids. And I'll be there as a source. Now, hopefully he'll have other uncles. But I'm his spiritual father in reality, thankfully, not just his physical father. And so he's going to bounce around things. Here's what's happening with my boys, this or that, or my girl, I'm struggling with that. And so I'm going to help him as a grandfather of these children, parent his children. And if I live long enough, I walk with him as he walks with his sons and daughters who walk with their sons. Does that make sense? In the natural world. All we're saying is translate the natural world thinking to the spiritual world and just repeat it. It just happens more concisely because I can have a son and grandson and great-grandson in this next year from scratch. That's how fast it happens. That's what's cool about discipleship, is you can have, and most of the sons I work with, I didn't lead to the Lord. They, like me, most people never were discipled. They never had a spiritual parent. Never anybody walked with them in an intentional, strategic way. And so most, I'm talking upper 90% of the men I've worked with, I never led to the Lord. I just was in a community, and these guys are flopping around in the mud, and they want Jesus, they're hungry, and we approach, and they show interest or they don't, and we go forward. There's so many, there's so many guys and gals out there that have never had a parent, they're dying for it. They don't even know they're dying for it. Some do, most don't. But when they see a family spiritually that's functioning, and you're praying, 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 God moves their heart and they want some of that enchilada. Right? Okay. What do we got? Five minutes? Three. Okay. So, for the record, um, uh, I, I can email you the notes if you want. I got yeah. Uh, yeah. I got business cards up here with my cell phone. If I can help you reach your goals, I'll do it. I got a website. It's on there, scottykessler.com. All this stuff are on documents. You can pull off the web. You can call me about it. You can. Uh, Frankly, I'm a Marco Polo guy if you know that app. I'm not a phone call guy. So we can Marco Polo, we can text, email. If I can help you reach, I'm not, I'm just a guy. I'm just saying if there's anything you heard that you wanna bounce around, I'm willing and available. That's all I'm saying. So I got a website, we got stuff on YouTube. We got, we got all kinds of stuff that's free. We got a school if somebody wanted credit for that stuff. Um, books, let me tell you about this stuff. I did not talk about prayer. EM Bounds. EM, initials, EM, bounds. The kind of, I didn't talk about prayer at all in this session. Um, Using prayer as a weapon of war to move the ball in the invisible world, to break out, so evangelism sticks, and discipleship occurs. If you don't have in your arsenal what we call long praying, which is praying for an hour or more regularly with others, Um, my experience is, you're not gonna get the bang for buck out of whatever your efforts are if you have not injected it with freaky amounts of prayer that nobody has time for. Nobody has time for it. You'll make time for it if you have a revelation that this is how the invisible world moves. It's not my opinion. Bible verses about the weapons we fight with are not the weapon of the world. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. There's all kinds of verses. We do not have, unfortunately, examples in our world that we can draw from of Christian leaders who got freaky prayer lives and it's known publicly, which is why we don't reproduce it because we haven't seen it. Uh, Our churches generally, my opinion, I'm not down on churches, I'm just saying FYI. So uh, this is a great book treasure, just E.M. bounds. He wrote eight little books, then he compiled into a complete thing, if you want these books, just write me and I'll give you the Amazon. Click on a fuse. They're like five bucks, man, for a stinking latte. You can go to a guy that's got a, a picture of prayer, in my experience, unlike what is written out there, my opinion, um, Dawson Trotman, to turn you onto this little, all that I talked about is handled in this little 34 page little booklet, 50 cents a piece. I sent them out like candy to guys that are interested in discipleship, just because I'm fishing. I'm fishing for somebody to say, I, 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 I need somebody. Uh, Master Plan on Vageland, the best single book out there to talk about this concept that we're going on. You uh, you that no, I do not, but they're simple to get on, the, simple to get on Amazon. Yeah, very inexpensive. Dr. Coleman's going to be here tomorrow. Unfortunately, I probably won't ask him to speak much. He's 95 years old, but when he prays at the end of the conference, for the conference, uh, I think he's still of sound right mind that you'll capture his heart of a shepherd. You, you hear the guy pray, and you'll say, well, he's from a different planet, because he is. And uh, and that will be a good for you to see the infusion of the Spirit that caused him to look at Jesus in the 12 and put something down. So when you asked Dr. Coleman, I asked him this in the late 90s, I said, Dr. Coleman, would you write? You know, he wrote it in 62 or three, um, And he was a 20-year-old seminary professor. It was his first class he ever taught on evangelism at Asbury, and he said, discipleship I can't find anything written about discipleship and so with these 13 students they just kind of together looked at the gospel saw what Jesus did with the 12 and it turned into a book it's a really fascinating story but out of that book so I said to him I said would you write anything different and my first reaction is you know we change over decades and I would think but I'd write everything different I'm a different guy but he said he said no I, I don't think I wouldn't my first reaction is that's weird and then I thought the Holy Spirit wrote the book yeah. And so it wasn't about him being more or less mature to write it. And that's why it stood the test of time because he didn't write it. And that's why he wouldn't change it because the Holy Spirit got it right the first time. super cool. So anyway, let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for these people. Uh, Father, uh, if if you want us to continue to engage, your will be done on that. They have opportunity and I'm just a stinking guy. All I can do is give it my best shot. And I tried to do that today and I pray your will be done. Help them remember what you want them to remember and forget what you want them to forget. Help them to hear from you. You're the teacher, you're the master. You got the master plan, you're the master evangelist, you're the master discipler. We go to you, oh God. Thank you that you've given us people that have gone before us that we can glean from. But Holy Spirit, your name, oh God, your glory, your will, you must increase, we must decrease. Forgive us our sin. Forgive us, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And I hope that you'll take the time to go over to discipleship.org slash collective and make a free account there. And when you're done with that, check out the schedule for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. You can buy tickets today because it's going to be a great event as it always is. All right. Thanks again for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.